Welcome to Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat, where the best minds in the drone world come to engage. I'm Richard Fisher, publisher at Inside Unmanned Systems, coming to you live from the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., with your hosts, Sean Bullard and James Poss. Hello, I'm Sean Bullard. And I'm James Poss. Together, we're Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat. Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat is a weekly podcast that gets the highest caliber guests and drills down on the most important topics in the drone world. Sean, what are we covering this episode and how does it fit into this month's subject, the proposed ops over people rules? Well, James, we discussed the basics of the small UAS ops over people last episode and did a deep dive on the research behind the rule. This episode, we're going to discuss whether major commercial drone operators can still do business under these proposed rules. I know everyone did their homework and read the notice of proposed rulemaking on the small UAS ops over people, as well as the Assure Phase 1 ground impact research. So the audience should be ready to dive into the details on ops over people. Yeah, okay. And I got to tell you, if you haven't done your homework, stop listening now, go back and read the stuff because this is really important. Okay. Now, I know we picked a dramatic title for this episode. Will we have a commercial drone market after ops over people? But, you know, Sean, I think it's a valid question. I I got the impression from last week's episode that the FAA picked a very, very conservative methodology for determining impact damage, and not even the phase one Assure Impact research supported it. Uh, And then there was the prohibition on drone flight over moving vehicles. I mean, that that was a surprise to Dave Arterburn, the FAA's lead researcher, something I'd never seen the FAA discuss before. I mean, how do you deliver packages to people, map a construction site, inspect a highway, respond to an emergency situation when your drone can only uh, dent your SUV with the power of a little league pitch? And it can't fly over moving vehicles. How does that work? Okay, so we have just the person to answer that question. Sitting right here across from us in the studio here at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., we have Lisa Elman, who is the co-director of the Commercial Drone Alliance and has been at Ground Zero for all things drone rules for quite a while now. Lisa, welcome to Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat. It's great to have you with us. Thank you so much, Sean, and thank you, James. I'm thrilled to be here. Hey, no problem. Hey, before we start, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and the Commercial Drone Alliance? I mean, how did you get into the drone world? Absolutely. So I actually come from the policy side. My focus has traditionally over the last several years been on emerging technology policy. I worked in the uh, federal government for many years. I worked at the Office of Science and Technology Policy at the White House. My last job in the administration, this was back in 2013, 2014, was running drone policy development at the Department of Justice and helping to lead the White House interagency team that was tasked with integrating drones into our national airspace. So I saw from inside government, how what an exciting new industry this would be, and realized I really could help the industry more from the outside. And so I left for the private sector. I founded a commercial drone law practice, which I now lead at Hogan Lovell's Law Firm. I also, working with uh, leaders in the commercial drone industry, we founded the Commercial Drone Alliance. The Commercial Drone Alliance is an independent nonprofit focused on moving the commercial drone industry forward, led by key members of the commercial drone industry. And I, along with Gretchen West, are co-founded and co-lead the group. Uh, We look to expand commercial drone operations and integrate commercial drones safely and securely into the national airspace, working with the federal government and other stakeholders. So that's wonderful. And and I've known Lisa and, and James and I have known Lisa for a while uh, since uh, since when. So yeah. it's just been wonderful to see the growth that you've had and 
in uh, in the space. And so, in our last episode, we we covered the basics of small UAS ops over people and uh, and the rule and um, and the rulemaking process, which you are very uh, keen uh, to and keen with. I'm, I'm confident the FAA will get the draft final rule out for interagency coordination in the next six to nine months. But there's no way I'm betting on when we'll see the final rule. How do you view the timeline for the final rule? And are you are you braver than me and willing to bet on an earlier final rule date? I'll keep in mind this is recorded. So if you say anything, we're actually going to come after you yeah. for a bet. So. <laughs> Uh, the answer is no. I'm not braver. I'm not going to bet an earlier final rule date, but this is for a few reasons. First, this NPRM makes very clear that we need a remote identification rulemaking before any right. final operations over people rulemaking is, is formalized. So we're not going to see any final operations over people rule until we have a, a comprehensive remote identification remote identification framework in place, we haven't even seen an NPRM on that, right? right? So there's a whole other rulemaking process that has to move forward before we see anything that's we, final. We, we, we hear you. Uh, there's a, if you think there's debate over impact uh, rules, wait till you see the debate over remote ID. Exactly. We're going to be starting to cover remote ID next month, so we'll go into great detail. But what you're saying is the timeline is actually worse than you would think it is. got to solve remote ID, which has huge problems. And then you and can then you get taps over people. I would wow. also add, as we're going to talk about today, and if you've talked about it in your previous episode, right. there are a lot of changes that need to be made to this NPRM in order for it to be a functional rule for the public and for the commercial drone community. And so I actually hope that the FAA does take some time to go back to the drawing board on several of these concepts. So while, of course, I want this to happen as quickly as possible, um, I also want them to put the time in that's necessary in order to get it right. Well, I mean, so you want rules, obviously, but last thing you want is a bad rule. Quickly. The last thing we yeah. want is a bad rule. I mean, if we have a bad rule, we all understand the the rulemaking process takes a lot of time. It'll be ten years before we're able to revisit it. So we need something uh -huh. that works for us now. Okay, so tell us a little bit about the politics. You know, you're a policy person. You you've been through this, you know, in the Obama, literally in the Obama White House, and now you've been dealing with it on the outside. Uh, why did it take so long to come out? Um, the, you know, the original arc was just about micro UAS and mm -hmm. now we've got this whole ops over people. I mean, really what's going on behind the rule? It's a great question, James. And this all started a few years ago. In 2016, there was an operations over people draft proposed rule that went through the interagency process for the first time. Yeah, like three years ago. Yeah, three years ago. And it actually made its way. It was um, OIRA, Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, which is the the, okay. the office at Office of Management and Budget at the White House who does the interagency process. Um had run it through the interagency process and the national security agencies at that time expressed strong concerns. And they said, essentially, until certain drone security protocols were in place through law and through rule, they would not approve expanded operations for the commercial drone industry, including operations over people. So let's, let's name names. DOD, yeah. DOD DHS, DHS, DOJ. Held the rules yes. hostage, and I'm, I'm not using political terms, I'm using uh, practical terms, until they got remote ID. Correct. So, uh, and we still don't, again, we still, that's why we need to wait for the remote ID rule. That's, that's why this NPRM makes clear that remote ID has to happen. They have two, they have two concerns. The first is remote identification. Whose drone is that? How do I identify friend from foe? The second concern was, if I'm in a law enforcement agency, how do I mitigate potential drone threats? And 
that's essentially enabling counter drone technology, which was against the law and has been against the law, even for the federal government. And the 2018 FAA reauthorization fixed the counter mm-hmm. drone. Yeah, we, we talked about technology. that last month. Okay, and, and great. I know you were intimately involved in it, but you know, like, yes. I guess that makes sense. Want to make sure you can identify them and shoot them down before you launch. But, but let me people. let me ask from a policy standpoint: Is this rule? Because sometimes agencies will use it. Is this a push or pull rule? That's a great question, Sean. I think one of the questions from the community is: Who is this operations over people rule meant for? Because if this is meant for responsible commercial operators, then why is it so incredibly strict, right? And um, and so that's something that we can talk about, but there is a lot of concern there. Okay. Well, let's talk about that now. Um, why were they so strict on this? And any thoughts behind that? I mean, Dave Otterburn, you know, expressed it as, um, you know, the Category 2 one, which, you know, just to sum things up, Category 2 are drones that are allowed to, you know, fly over people with mitigating measures, you know, just anywhere except for gatherings. He said category two was like getting hit by an 11-year-old pitch in Little League. And then category three, uh, which is for closed uh, work site where everybody knows the drone is flying, maybe they've got, you know, construction helmets on or stuff. The standard only upped it to being hit by a 14-year-old Little League pitch. It's still going to hurt a little bit, but you're going to be okay after you rub it out. Yeah, I've been hit by 14-year-olds. Well, and we take risks in our lives. I mean, there's always the challenge as a policymaker. You want to weigh the costs and benefits of any approach and figure out what what leads to the most amount of benefits for society. And there are so many amazing public use cases for operations over people, for disaster response and, and public safety applications. It's clear that we need to enable operations over people. The question is at what cost, right? So, and in, in, in how to do so in a way that is common sense and provides a framework for, for this regulation that's common sense. In order to get there, we need a rational risk analysis um, that analyzes the the, the you know st- very small addition of risk to the airspace, but also the broad societal benefits, and we don't see that in this in this rule at all. Um, it's focused very narrowly on a kinetic energy transfer threshold question. This has been the case. This is how the FAA has handled these questions for many years now. I've been involved with operations over people waivers. Um, I know you're going to be talking with uh, Tobin from Vantage Robotics soon as well. Um, you know the FAA has traditionally relied upon the the Range Commanders Council, the RCC uh, methodology to establish their their transfer transfer thresholds. And that doesn't make sense in this context because it's looking at potential injuries from falling metal debris or shrapnel and rather than a a small plastic drone. Solid objects. I mean, literally, it could be talking about something like a bullet falling from 20,000 feet. That's not a drone. It's not a drone. And it's not accounting for um, all of the various factors. It's also not incentivizing safety because if you add a parachute to a drone, you're then adding weight and then that counts against you in the in the whole equation. So well, yeah, I, I know there's drones, for example, that have uh, collapsible structures on the outside that, yes, it may hit you for, you know, a couple microseconds at the, the speed of a, you know, 11 year old pitch, but it's going to collapse and then it all dissipates. I mean, so that's, me, that's how we do cars, for goodness sake. Let say. me ask this question because there's been a lot of criticism of the rule. So let's just be blunt. Um, do you feel as if this rule is at risk? Is it going to survive? <laughs> it's a good question. I think it's a fair question. And there's been there's been question in the in the the commercial drone community of should you know do we want this to move forward at all or should we go back should we ask the FAA to go back to the drawing board? 
And, you know, I think um, a lot of folks are trying to grapple with that question right now. And I think it's a question that we're all grappling as a community. Um, I think if a substantial number of changes are made, then it could be an acceptable first step to expanding the airspace, but it's going to take a lot of changes in order to get to You have to be careful when you're changing a rule because you only have so many changes before you reach a certain threshold, which means that that rule is no longer valid. Correct. And you're stuck with it for 10 years. And you're stuck with it for 10 years. So that's the the concern. You've got to be careful. I got a basic question. (laughs) Why aren't they even waiting for the phase two assure research to come out, which is going to come out in literally weeks? Why are they sticking? A little premature, wouldn't you think? It's a great question. I think that's a question for the FAA. All right. We stumped <laughs> D. Lisa Elman there. So we, yes. we got her twice so far. She's deferred the question. <laughs> Let's ask her again a different way. No, nah, no. Nah. <laughs> All right. But that's pretty good stuff there, Lisa. But hey, um, unfortunately, we got to take a, a break real quick. We'll get back. But when we get back, uh, I want to ask about that prohibition on uh, drone operations over moving vehicles. Be back in a few, folks. Thank you for joining Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat, sponsored by Rodian Schwartz, a leader in test and measurement for radar and EW, satellite technology, avionics, navigation, and guidance. Rodian Schwartz products help protect critical infrastructures with drone detection and defense solutions. Learn more at InsideUnmannedSystems.com. Okay, Lisa, that's all good. How about the prohibition on drone ops over moving vehicles? Where did that come from? That was a surprise, wasn't it? To all of us. I think it was a curveball for all of us. Uh, I think there were a few factors here. First, we've heard rumblings that this may have come from some of the surface transportation agencies at the Department of Transportation. You think? Yeah, who said, your vehicles can't impact our vehicles, essentially, which is, obviously, this is a a (laughs) non-starter for the commercial drone industry, right? right? How do you fly drones commercially if you can't fly? over roads and streets. It just doesn't, it, it's, it doesn't make any sense. Um, and it also ignores the fact that automobile drivers, we all face risks every day driving our cars. Uh, drive, we're trained to react. And, well, and, and you're pretty we're well also armored. Yes, we're sheltered thing. in a vehicle. So it doesn't make sense to me how I can be totally unprotected, but if drone is safe to fly right. over me, totally unprotected. But if I'm in a moving vehicle where I'm completely sheltered, it's actually not safe. It seems like an arbitrary distinction to I, me. Yeah, I, it, you know, I'm struggling with how they came up with this other than the your vehicle can't hit my vehicle thing, which I'm afraid is the, is the truth there. I, maybe, uh, you know, if one hit a driver would dodge, but, uh, you know, it just seems like you face worse risks from, you know, driving down. You know, I-95, bricks falling off cars. And well, you'd almost that. even want to. I mean, if you if you took a navigation, I mean, maritime navigation, you're always encouraged, you know, being a sailor. I mean, you're always encouraged to cross the channel when you're crossing uh, the channel up to Baltimore and the Chesapeake Bay and you're in a smaller yeah, boat. Cross, cross it at 90 degrees. Exactly. Yeah. You cross it 90 degrees as quickly as you can because that that well, that that ship is moving very quickly. And Lisa, correct me if I'm wrong, the people have gotten waivers to fly over vehicles have yeah, it's yeah. the get-go. Yeah. No, Part 107 didn't distinguish between operations over moving vehicles and operations over unprotected people. So that's where that's why there's a whole lot of surprise right now that they would just outright ban operations over moving vehicles. And you can imagine the practical implications of this are, are significant. If I can't fly over a moving vehicle, then I essentially can't fly over roads because if I'm an operator, how do I know exactly when a, a car is beneath me? It's just not. Right. I, you know, I, I tell you, Lisa. 
I was on the ARC, as we've mentioned before, and what we discussed on the Aviation Rulemaking Committee was probably a good idea to fly drones down roads because everybody's protected by the vehicle. Exactly. And you don't want them flying, uh, you know, over, you know, people in the streets and all this. Exactly. This is, this is just not making sense. Yeah. Me. No, it's it's a challenge. And it was it was a surprise and it's a real critical issue for our community. So I'd suspect that whoever wrote that within the, the rule uh, or the proposed rule, um, they knew that 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 language would capture the imagination of all of us. I would imagine mm. so. I do think it came know. as a as a shock, though, to some within the federal government as well. Oh, I know well, that really? for a fact. Yes, most certainly. Yeah. Are you yes, willing to name some... names, roughly, of what agency they're in, in, in what agency? I, I think uh, in a number of agencies. Some with three-letter words? Some, yes, exactly. Or three letters. Three, three letters. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. I think there was a lot of surprise, okay. both within the government and the industry on that one. Well, all, all that said, I mean, did we get the title right for this episode? Uh, will we have a vibrant commercial drone industry if the FAA publishes these rules as is, or was I being a little hysterical? James, you're asking the right question. Unfortunately for all of us, we will not have a vibrant commercial drone industry if the rule is published as is. And that's why we all need to act. Like the pressure is on us right now and the challenge is before us. This proposed rule as is will do little, if anything, to actually expand broadly commercial drone operations over people. That's clear. The majority of operations will still require waivers or exemptions or other special approvals from the FAA. And we all know how that's gone. It's been, you know, the FAA has has worked hard to improve that process. And there have been some improvements. But as, you know, as recent as last year, there were only a t- there was a 10% approval rate, according to the Department of Transportation Inspector General. I, you know, and I got to tell you, I, I was very happy when Part 107 came out all those years ago, because they would allow waivers. And I thought, we all oh, were. my gosh, yeah, the FAA is going to get these waivers, they're going to use that to collect data, they're going to approve, you know, 97% of them. Uh, this is going to be great. That was a bait and switch. Yeah, 10% uh, t- approval rate. 10% approval rate. Well, oh you know, gosh. if you remember, the NPRM for Part 107 actually did not include a waiver process. And then that was a change that was made during the interagency process really? in, in response did to the public that. comments that came in. That is that is a kind of indicative of the changes you can make to a final rule between the notice of proposed rulemaking stage and the final rule stage. But I think because it wasn't initially proposed, it was an add-on. Perhaps the agency wasn't as well prepared to deal with the influx. But it was also kind of to wean folks off of uh, 333, right? I mean, they wanted that just to be a temporary kind of a Band-Aid exactly. fix. Well, exactly. Well, you know, it, it, and I know uh, disapproving 90%, uh, you know, is, is a bad thing. But one thing we haven't talked about in this rule is it does allow drones to fly at night, basically. Yes, and that is a good thing. They, they got the night operations well, correct. Which is good. Which but, is great. But basically, Give credit where it's due to the right. FAA. Yeah, Absolutely. But basically it says just have lights on. Yeah. And it, well, with all the waivers, I mean, what – 90% or more of the approved waivers or night waivers. Exactly. So it's essentially so, uh, a de facto rules. So yeah. really all of the ones that they approved uh, simply said, hey, I'm going to fly at night with my lights on, which mm-hmm. is about the simplest thing you could do. And all the rest of them were uh, denied for all of these complex ops over people stuff. So mm-hmm. that statistic that you just mentioned is actually worse than you just said. So it's if we don't worse get this- because it, do- it doesn't account for most of the – Disapprovals. I mean, most of the the waiver applications have been for night operations, but most of the disapprovals are beyond visual on the site, ops over people. There have been very, I'll say this, there have been very few 
approvals of those types of expanded operations. You know, so bottom line is don't count on uh, the waiver process to save this rule because it, it sure didn't uh, before in Part 107. So we talked about timeline earlier and full circle and, and that it could be a long time before approval. Um, is that actually, I, I guess if you, if you back up a little bit and ask yourself, um, can this rule be changed enough to be palatable to the commercial drone industry? Well, we would make several changes to the rule, I think, in order for it to be palatable. If you were king or, I guess, queen for a day, what <laughs> would Lisa Elman do? Top three. So yeah. first, we would fix fix the whole risk analysis methods framework. We'd analyze the costs and benefits to society broadly. Um, we would in, consider as well the probability that something bad would actually happen. Um, we would use... You know, if to the extent we actually use kinetic energy impact thresholds, we would use accurate ones that are um, maybe assured data. Yeah, maybe the assured data, maybe which the is phase two data, it, which will be out in a couple weeks. Or, it, yeah. Exactly, some more accurate data. Um, and you know, we would also permit expand more expanded operations for sophisticated operators and incentivize safety and this rule in order to provide a pathway forward for. Um, and what do you mean by sophisticated operators? That like you know, provide kind of a, a category under which you do you have you know enhanced training or other. Um, you you have some form. You know, you are enabled further to. Um, fly over people under a certain set of protocols. So, like we do with the airlines. Exactly. You know, so there's type certification for airline pilots. Airlines have to go under you know, all kinds of other certification than a normal general aviation pilot doesn't do. That makes sense. It makes sense. Or like a no, the known shipper program is another example. That oh, yeah, to. for security. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which is a TSA program, I think, that yeah. if you're a known trustworthy shipper, they don't you know look at every single container you're bringing across. If you're... Uh, you know, AT&T or Apple or Amazon, um, you could apply for that known. Yeah. Uh, you you know, provide for, a lot of information. You work with the phone. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and just like, you know, Delta Airlines gets treated differently than, than I would fly yeah. and you treat uh, um, Amazon uh, differently. Yep. Okay. Well, makes that, sense. that makes sense. Yeah. That's just a start, though. Those are my top three, but that's just a start. I would, I would have a lot more changes. And really... Oh, okay. Well, what are the other ones? Um, well, like there are other changes that could be made. So, for example, the FAA could broaden the definition of who is actually a direct participant in the operation so right. that they don't actually fall under the scope of the rule, right? Um, right now, it's only... Um, employees who are part of the flight operation, but you can imagine expanding that to include employees who have been briefed on the hazards of the operation and have consented to overflight of the small unmanned aircraft, kind of like in the closed set filming context. And, mm. you know, why not? That would that would take them out of the scope of this rule and it would broaden many of the applications for companies, including many end users and in the infrastructure community and others. Yeah. Um, well, so it would be a small it, fix that would have a huge... Well, it goes back to that broad societal risk. I mean, exactly. if I'm working at an oil field in Texas, you know, one of the more dangerous work sites in America, I mean, I've got yeah. those heavy, uh, heavy leather gloves, I've got a, a construction helmet on, I got steel-toed boots... Uh, am I really at that much more risk of having a five-pound drone over, overhead inspecting my rig than I am of just about anything else that could fall off of that exactly. rig? And, and am I briefed and trained, and You're do I briefed. expect to look up for drones? I mean, that, that exactly. makes sense. And on a construction site, I'm wearing a hard hat, yeah, right. and everyone else is around me, and we all know that there are risks on a construction site. The drones are helping alleviate many of those risks. 
uh, why can't, why do I have to, you know, unfortunately fall under? You, you know, the one that always gets me um, is, uh, you know, and let's take the film industry, for example. Yeah. Um, they never take into account the risk that would be posed if you did something else. So in other words, uh, they'll, they'll stop a 15 pound drone from flying over a, a set of actors that trust me, no one in Hollywood is going to let an actor impact a drone. But the, the alternative to that is to fly a 5,000-pound helicopter over that same actor. I mean, exactly. that's crazy. Well, I mean, they were the first to get the approval yeah. to fly on a movie set. And I think they used the the research that, uh, you know, you, you've got a, a five-ton helicopter up there. But exactly. But they could Nobody's be Nobody's got a hard hat back. on either. But, and I'm, I'm not aware, and I don't know if you all have heard of anything, but I'm not aware of any incidents happening, any safety no. incidents that happened because of those 333 close-up filming approvals. Well, yeah, not but, because of a drone, but no, I mean, but, they, they had some real challenges. I mean, I, I, I saw the early, the very earliest um, proposals that they well, had put together. Well, that's the whole point of this rule, used, though. That it, we could be taking a step back. Those guys, exactly, what they're yeah, doing I mean, now might be illegal under yeah, this new rule. That's crazy. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, you want a 15-pound drone or a 55-pound drone, or do you want a five-ton helicopter? Exactly. Okay. So can you disclose with us whether you have a plan B? I mean, if worse comes to worse, and but I'm going to, I'm going to, by the end of the show, I'm going to get you guys to, to, uh, give me an estimate on what you think the rule is. I'm, I'm going to say two years. In two years, when we get this rule, I mean, what, what's your plan B? What are you? What I think are you that's really ambitious. I think that's ambitious. I'm not betting. So. Well, so, yeah. I mean, right now, our current plan, like between now and April 15th, is to educate the community as much as possible. Um, you know, there have only been pretty few numbers of public comments that have been docketed, and we want to see the community all come together. This is this is something that any any company in the commercial drone space or impacted by commercial drones that makes use of commercial drones should be commenting on this rule. Or, and or part of associations or alliances that are okay. commenting on this rule. So we're working across the industry with other industry associations, with individual companies trying to educate, let, let you know, it, frankly, um, it's a complex, complicated rule for people who aren't engineers who don't understand these <laughs> kinetic energy impact thresholds. Yes, we right? just talked with Dave, the engineer, <laughs> last episode. We, right. we got that. Our, yeah. our brains are hurting yeah. us right now, <laughs> literally. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And so you have and you have a, you know, a talented engineer to explain it all to you, but many people don't. And exactly. so the, that's the challenge. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the irony of it is um, the one rule that I, I do know was going really well is what the FAA calls large UAS, which are, you know, UAS that are over 55 pounds flying in controlled airspace. You know, would, would this ever get to the point to where you would tell your clients to, you know, stop flying five-pound drones and fly 56-pound drones because you might get a better answer Good question. out of yeah. a different set of rulemakers? I mean, that's the irony of this whole thing. It is very ironic. I mean, it's a, it's, it's, it's a challenge. And so right now we're just trying to fight the fight. There are champions within the federal government. There, are, You know, as you know, the it's not one federal government. It's not one FAA. There are champions for this technology within the FAA that are fighting this battle every day on behalf of the industry, but also on behalf right. of the American public Absolutely. who desire to use commercial drones for their amazing safety and efficiency benefits. True. So we need to help our champions within the federal government fight this fight over the next year to two years, however long it takes, so that we get something that is palatable for all of us and that really allows us to take advantage of the great benefits of this that this industry offers. And, and I'll tell you what, I'll name names. Uh, you know, the great folks in the FAA UAS Integration Office, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I tell you, you, you want to talk with some folks that know the issue and yeah. knows how it's working, 
talk with those guys in the UAS integration office. They're fantastic. They're and they're fighting the fight every day. Very much so. Yeah. Okay, so we're about running out of time. I'm going to ask you to reiterate. If you were queen for a day, your top three things, what, what would you do with this rulemaking process and what are the top three changes you'd make? I would change the risk analysis methods and framework, uh, including all the kinetic energy impact thresholds and use um, different methodology. I would change the blanket prohibition on flights over moving vehicles, which, yeah. which doesn't make any mm-hmm. sense. Right. And I would expand, you know, permit more expanded operations for certain operators, some kind of trusted operator, right. known shipper type program. Um, and I think as part of that would tweak the direct participant uh, definition to in order to bring in a lot of the best commercial drone use cases where hard hats and consent is involved yeah. um, so that it does not fall within the scope of this rule. Absolutely. Lisa, thank you so much for some fantastic insight into the impact of proposed small UAS ops over people rules. It's sobering to hear how the rules, as is, could cripple our commercial drone industry before it even starts. What will we cover next episode, James? Okay, so we're going to go into another research effort uh, that hopefully uh, you know went into these draft rules. We never know. Uh, to get some insight on how the FAA sees ops over people working in the real world. Uh, We're going to have Tobin Fisher from Vantage Robotics on to discuss the operations over people uh, pathfinder that was actually led by uh, CNN. Uh, Vantage Robotics was a key player in the ops over people pathfinder, and I'm sure that uh, Tobin is going to have some great insight into what works for ops over people within the FAA. Well, folks, this concludes Episode 6 of Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat. I'd like to thank our guest, Lisa Ellman, with the Commercial Drone Alliance and wish her the best of luck in getting these draft rules changed sooner rather than later. Go get them, Lisa. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's a wrap for this week's edition of Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat. I'm Richard Fisher, publisher of Inside Unmanned Systems, saying farewell from the National Press Club in Washington, D.C.